Father, we have chosen to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, but to join with other fellow believers in a time of fellowship, a time of prayer, a time of study of your word, a time in which we honor you and and worship your name. We're so grateful, Lord, in this world of chaos that we have a solid rock upon which to stand that we know that no matter what the, how dark the future may look, we are in the hands of the one who controls that future. And we know, Father, that your love for us surpasses anything we can possibly imagine, and that you have a plan that you are working out in each of our lives. And Father, I pray that our faith will be made strong, that we will become people of prayer, that we will become people who walk by the word that we hear and study and learn. May this truly be a learning time today. We invite your spirit to be our teacher. And Father, we pray that in every class this morning in this Sunday school that you will be present in power. In Jesus' name, amen. The Ten Commandments are a very pithy statement of God's plan for how his people would walk. And he spends the entire scripture expanding on that so we might understand exactly what is meant, why, and how. In our study, we last week looked at verse 15 of chapter 20 of Exodus, which simply says, you shall not steal. Or if you have the King James Version, thou shall not steal. It's the same. God has a tendency to say things very bluntly, clearly, specifically. You know, I, I really, ha- I was thinking about this this morning. So, so many people try to get around Scripture by saying, that's your interpretation. Interpretation? I mean, it says it flat out. You know, I, you know there are passages of Scripture that are a little bit convoluted and, and a little bit enigmatic. And interpretation, I suppose, can vary. But the basic teaching of Scripture is straightforward, clear. And there there isn't any way to uh, miss the understanding unless one has a, uh, you know, is operating from an a priori system which rules out that that understanding or that truth. We read in verse 13, it says, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And verse 15, you shall not steal. It's very, very clear, I think. But, obviously, the definition of steal is, I guess, where some people come to uh, a differing opinion. And so we were looking at some of the passages of Scripture that give us an understanding of what is meant by stealing. And the last thing we were looking at, we ran out of time, and I didn't want to rush to the end here, of this particular commandment, we're looking at various forms of covert theft. I mean, obviously everybody agrees, or pretty much everybody would agree, that if you walk up to somebody and stick a gun in their back and say, give me your money, that that's stealing. (coughs) But there are other ways by which we can acquire someone else's property, someone else's resources, or misappropriate what we already have, which also constitutes stealing. 
And so we looked at uh, a passage which talks about moving a landmark, which would be you know, having anything to do with <coughs> modifying uh, uh, surveyed land, land, real estate. And then secondly, we, we looked at a passage in Isaiah, which um, a lot of people might have some question about, about this. The idea that if we spend our money on ourselves at any whim, simply because we say, well, it's my money, I can do what I want with it whenever I want to, that that in, actual, in, in reality is also theft. To unwisely waste our money on things that have no fulfillment, no satisfaction, no meaning, is, is theft. You're stealing from yourself, from your future, from what you can do uh, later on down the line. I think it's really, for, for believers, there is a truth here that underlies it all. And that is that God has made us caretakers of a certain amount of resources. As such, they are not really ours to just do with as we want whenever we want to. Now, God gives us the resources to meet our needs and, you know, to have fun, to recreate, to go on a vacation. I'm not saying anything about that. But the attitude is where it really comes in. I mean, whatever amount of resources we have, that is not there for us to just throw away at a moment's notice. That's what makes gambling really so evil. Because you are, I mean, not you, but a person who does this is wasting resources because, I mean, everybody knows, if they've done any study at all, that gambling is set up in such a way that the odds are against you. There is no way in the long run that you can ever come out ahead. And so it's always that chance element. Quote, Lady Luck, whoever she is. You know. One of the Roman gods was Fortuna, you know, the goddess of fortune. And you know, we talk about, we say to each other, have, well, you know, good luck. Well, that's just a way of saying goodbye, and, and certainly we don't mean anything serious by it, hopefully. I really prefer the Spanish statement, Vaya con Dios. Well, that's, really, that's really a good statement. Go with God. Better than good luck, really. Because luck doesn't mean anything to a, to a believer, or to anybody, actually. There is no such thing as luck. Uh, with God, there is either yay or nay. And, and God is the one who guides our lives. And uh, we can fly directly in, in the face of what God wants for our lives and, and be wasteful. And, and uh, gambling is one form of wasting money, uh, throwing it away. And that, I think, would directly come under this, uh, the second one here about profligate spending is not of God. If God wanted you to have a windfall, he'll give you a windfall. You don't have to go out and try to win the lottery because you're, it's like a the Reader's Digest. You know, you all get those things from the Reader's Digest. It says that you are one step away from the $11 million grand prize. And I always get fun. I would turn it over and read the small print. And it says your chances of the grand prize are one in 292 million. You're far more likely to get hit by a meteorite. <laughs> <laughs> than to win a grand prize. In fact, if you save the postage that you put in sending that back and collect that postage over the years, <laughs> you'll have a true nest egg. <laughs> It'll buy you a meal when you uh, retire. You know. 
Then, of course, we also talked about the passages in the Scripture would make it clear about robbing God, and we won't go back into that again, and about tax evasion. And then lastly, we didn't, not lastly, but we didn't get a chance to talk about the covert theft that is in the action and the attitude of, of people who will not help the poor because they have no compassion. Kind of the concept of stinginess. In James chapter 2, we, we come to a, a passage where again, you know, God is always in the habit of cutting to the chase, you know? God doesn't beat around the bush or mince words. He comes right down to, to what he means. He says, through James, of course, in chapter 2, verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can faith save him? That means faith alone. Faith unexpressed by works. It's, it's the person who says, Well, when I was a kid, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, but has lived like the devil ever since. Well, there's no works to, to confirm that that faith was ever real. If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, you know, shalom, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. It's quite obvious that to tell someone, well, we hope that you get fed and we hope that you get clothed and, and we don't do anything to help them get fed and get clothed and we are able to help them get fed and, and, and to get clothed, then, then we are violating uh, God. We are stealing from the poor in that instance because God has given to us resources, most of us beyond our absolute basic needs, whereby we can help others if the need arises or the opportunity arises. I know myself, I have a problem in the sense that we do run across people who are confronting us and they want what used to be, brother, can I borrow a dime? You know, now it's, can I borrow 10 bucks, you know, or whatever. But they, they want money for food. And of course, you look at them and they're staggering around, you know, and you wonder if it's really food they want it for. And it's interesting, Lois had an encounter in the parking lot uh, yesterday with a fellow who, who didn't, wasn't staggering. She said he looked very neat and, and everything, but he said he was hungry. And so she asked him, you know, where he came from and everything. And she asked him if he went to church any place. And he's, what did he say? He, he wasn't? He was a Baptist. He was a Baptist. Had been a Baptist. But he wasn't going anywhere right now. But he, he had heard of Neighborhood Church, so she invited him. Uh, to come here, and she gave him some money so that he could, uh, quote, buy a hamburger, which is what he said he wanted. And, but, you know, we, we, all of us have a bit of a problem with people that we feel are, are just ripping us off, that they don't really have, well, they may have a need, but they're not really meeting that need because they're going out and just buying booze with it. That's so often what happens. So I think we need a measure of discernment to know whether, you know, this is a true need that uh, we can help meet. And I think that in that instance, we have no right to, to not help uh, that person, whoever it is. Now, primarily, of course, the thrust in Scripture is that we're to help brothers and sisters in Christ. That should be where our main focus is. And others within the church who have a need, specifically those are to be, are to be helped. And I think that's what the James passage is primarily, but not necessarily exclusively, 
focusing upon. And then, of course, there's the proverb seems to speak to almost every issue. But in the third proverb, we read this, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you, meaning now. Good can come in many forms, but there is, of course, a direct implication that in this passage of the good means you're providing them with some material need, substance with which to meet one of their needs, whatever that may be. So I think most of us can agree with the fact that God has given us ample to, to meet our own basic needs, and then when there is another in need, we can help them. Small way maybe, or sometimes even in a big way, if uh, God so directs us to do so. And I think that's where discernment comes in, and it's where being people of prayer comes in. Uh, Lois got the name of this fellow, and uh, we prayed for him. And I think that, you know, God uses even little contacts like that sometime down the line to just zap that person, you know. Oh, you know, wherever they may be. I think it's where we have to trust God to do the work in people's lives. There are some people whom, of course, we we feel live off the system. They go from church to church and, and they try to get what they can from churches. And, you know, that's their problem. And we have to, of course, be discerning, I think, as much as possible relative to people like that. But when God puts it upon our heart and gives us the ability, I think that we must respond uh, to help those that are in need of help. And then sixthly, uh, there is another form of covert robbery, and that's when wages are not paid on time and rents are not paid on time. Let me uh, read from, first of all, from uh, Malachi chapter 3. In verse 5, where it says this, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And then a, a very interesting passage in Jeremiah chapter 22, which is speaking in this instance of the king of Jerusalem in specific. But of course, the truth is beyond just the king of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 22, verse 13, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. Now, he's not talking here about if your neighbor comes over and helps you do something, you're supposed to pay him. That's not the the point here. He's talking about someone that's been hired to do a job but has not been paid. In this case, by the government, that is by the king himself. But that applies to to all of us. We are not to withhold wages from whom wages are due, and on time. In fact, that's what Leviticus 19 speaks to. Verse 13, You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, when those wages are due, pay them. Now, of course, in our day and age, we get paid every other week or once a month or once a week or however often it is. 
in those days, you got paid at the end of the day. The end of the day came and bang, there was your money and coin right there in your hand. And that wasn't, uh, that's not foreign to this country too. You go back 100 or 150 years in our history, maybe even not that far back. And, and that was also true. And, and that's what that is referring to. But it, of course, it refers to in, in any instance where wages are due, wages are to be paid on time. Because an awful lot of people live from paycheck to paycheck. And if their paycheck is delayed, then they are really put in a hard, hard way. Now, for many of us, this doesn't apply too much because we're on the end receiving the paycheck and not on the end giving a paycheck. But the principle is still true. And then there's one other that I, I didn't get on the outline, but I think it's important for us to note. And uh, that is, there are covert ways in business dealings of robbery. Now, this specifically speaks, if you stay in the same 19th chapter of Leviticus, uh, at the end of that chapter, verse 35, we read this, You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just epheth, which is, it, it'll, it'll tell you over there, is more or less a bushel, and a just hin, they say, tell you here, it's approximately a gallon. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances to do them. I am the Lord. Here it's speaking, of course, of not shortchanging people. In California, those of you who know California history may know that at the time of the gold rush, in the early months of the gold rush, there were many, many California Indians who were hired to work in the gold fields because there weren't very many other people here. When gold was first discovered in California, the, the first major discovery, that which became the, the triggered the gold rush, was discovered in January of 1848. Throughout the year of 1848, beginning about March or April, people began to move into the gold fields to uh, extract gold. But the manpower was, there, were, there was a shortage of manpower. And so many Indians were hired to work the gold fields and to extract gold. Some of them thus discovering that the white man loved gold, and they could never understand why that was, because to the Indian, the gold was meaningless stuff. You couldn't do anything with it. But if you could get guns and hatchets and blankets, the white man's stupid enough to give you those things for gold, we'll mine gold. <laughs> and anyway, they went out and mined on their own. On, on the side, uh, you know, aside from their wages, they would go out and do some mining on their own, and then they would bring the gold in. Well, the typical white merchant had two sets of scales. One set of scales for the white man, another set of scales for the Indian. And the set of scales for the Indian, it took a lot more gold to make an ounce than it did for the white man. And Indians even eventually caught on that they were being shortchanged there, but they still thought they were getting the better part of the deal because they could use a hatchet, but what are you going to do with this soft metal? And so the Indian was being cheated, and everybody knew the Indian was being cheated. That is unbiblical. Not that the person who was doing it was uh, a Christian, hopefully, not anyway. But the whole principle is that in business dealings, we must be forthright, straightforward, and honest. We must do everything right, even if others are doing everything wrong. We must not cut corners that pr produces an inferior product 
if we are claiming to produce a better product. I mean, if we're going to say our, our product's inferior because we've cut corners, then okay. But who's going to do that? You know. So if we say we have a certain product, we've got to be sure we're guaranteeing that product and that uh, we're paying a fair wage to our workers in the process and, and all of the rest of it. Now, there are some men in, in the U.S. history who made a great fortune on the backs of the poor. And some of them were professing believers. You've heard of John D. Rockefeller, probably, who was a Presbyterian Sunday school teacher. And yet he climbed the corporate ladder by crushing people along the way and driving other businesses out by undercutting them on purpose. You know, He would charge a high price for his product over here where there was no competition, so he could charge a low price over here where there was competition and drive the competition out of business. And this was in the oil industry. And in the, in the process, of course, at one point, he controlled 90% of the U.S. oil refining capacity. And yet all the time he talked about how good a Christian he was. Oh, sure, he gave money away to philanthropy. You know, I mean, he became a philanthropist and so forth. But, you know, being honest in your business dealings, straightforward, no secret deals by which you're undercutting someone else. This is all part of business, but that's not God's way of operating a business. And I think all of that has to, all that falls under the purview of this commandment, thou shalt not steal. This commandment, I think, clearly refers to robbery of God, robbery of others, and robbery of ourselves. It refers to improper acquisition and misappropriation of resources. By using it unwisely, we can actually be robbing because then we don't have it to minister to others, to give to God, or whatever. Probably the alcoholic doesn't think about the fact that using his, his money to buy alcohol is robbing his family. The family knows it is, but often he will say, oh no, I'm, I'm not robbing, it's my money, I earned it. What is also interesting is that bankruptcy becomes robbery if the intent is to never repay the creditor. Now, sometimes bankruptcy is necessary because the creditor won't listen to reason and, and won't take what you can do at this point in time, and so you're forced to go into bankruptcy. But at the same time, you have an obligation as a believer to ultimately repay the creditor no matter how long it takes. That's biblical. Hoarding is also stealing. If we acquire a bunch of stuff for ourselves because we're afraid it's going to run out and we deny others the opportunity to have that important item, that's robbery. Then also, and this is where it really tends to hit home to us in modern America today, if we owe so much to creditors, that is, we're so deeply in debt, that we cannot give to God what we should give to God and cannot help others as we should be able to help them. That's robbery. Let me read from Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. We know this passage so well, maybe almost too well, to remember how it applies. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Years ago, we were listening to a tape by Dr. John MacArthur. Some of you certainly have heard him. And he was saying that some friend of his wanted to do something for him. So that friend of his gave him 500 shares of a particular company. I'm not going to say there is anything wrong with owning 500 shares or however many shares of, of a corporation. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing crooked or illegal or anything bad about it. But let me just tell you what happened to him. He thought that was a nice gift. And so uh, he accepted it. But what he found was that as time passed, he found himself going to the newspaper fairly frequently to find out how his shares were doing. And then he found himself becoming a little bit uptight about his shares, whether they were going up or down. And it got to the point where he was anticipating the paper so he could find out how his shares were doing, you see. It was taking a hold of him, you know. I mean, this thing was beginning to master his life. And finally, he sold him. He says, it's not worth it. I cannot live this way. And that's what he's talking about. You know, that's laying up your treasures here on earth where you're so concerned and taken up with how my shares are doing, rather than just, you know, if you're going to own some shares, fine, buy them and put them away. I mean, don't buy them in some company that goes like this, you know. But like even non-Christian investors will say, buy it in good, solid companies and put it away and let it go. And, and you know, it's the only way, I think, that if, if we're going to be involved in that, we can actually um, have... Peace. God wants us to have peace, to sleep at night, to not be eaten alive by this, to not spend all our time worrying about this, you know, how my money is doing. Because that's not what life's about. Life's about reaching out to others. It's about sharing the love of Christ. It's helping others. It's not worrying about how my stuff is doing. Because we're going to die and all our stuff's going to be left behind. You know, Solomon even says that, you know, he's in Ecclesiastes, you accrue all this stuff to leave it to some kid who's going to waste it. Now, I trust that's not true of any of your children. <laughs> but that was Solomon's view of things. Of course, Solomon had quite a few children because he had a, you know, a, a lot of wives. <laughs> but you know, the, the root of it is peace, shalom. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world does. But we can't experience that peace if, if we live with our eyes focused on, on our stuff. Lay up not our treasures here. That doesn't mean we can't save. It doesn't mean we can't have a nice house. It doesn't mean we can't have a nice car. It doesn't mean we can't have nice clothes. It doesn't mean that we can't have investment for the future. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means where our mind and heart is. If we can have all of that and be focused on God and not worry about it, just say, there are my 500 shares, God. If you want me to have them, wonderful. If you want to take them, you can have them. You know, if that's our attitude, then, then it won't eat us up. It won't take us away. And if God says, sell those shares and give it to the church, and that's not a problem to you, then I think our hearts have reached that place that God wants to be. And then I think he can trust us with a few shares, maybe even 5,000 shares, you know. You never know what God will do. But it all comes down to attitude of heart. A parallel passage in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now I mean chapter 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. 
He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. But God does not promise us an abundance to blow on our own lusts, but an abundance for every good deed. You know, to each of us has to find our own place of, of commitment in this. Uh, and just as a, a suggestion, we have found that one way by which we can, on a relatively regular basis, reach out to the needy is to choose one of the good Christian organizations that does exactly that, like World Relief or World Vision or one of those. And there you can invest in a small amount on a regular basis that actually reaches out around the world and uh, touches lives of people uh, for the sake of God. Because if you do it like through you know, some secular organization, you know, well, their money might actually help the person, but there is no gospel along with it. But with World Relief and World Vision and some of these godly organizations, they, they take the money, but they also give the gospel. And it's in the name of Jesus that they provide these things and they dig the well and whatever it is that they do. And, and that's a way by which we can, on a regular basis, if that's what we feel led to do, uh, minister to the needy around the world. I think there's a good formula from Scripture that says this, basically. We are to work hard to earn a living to support ourselves and our family. We're to wisely use what God has given to us thereby. We are to save for the future. We're to help those in the body of Christ who are in true need. And we're to cheerfully give to God. I, I think all of those have strong biblical foundation. And, and if we walk with our resources in that way, I think God is honored, we will be blessed, and the church will prosper. Well, the next commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, some of these commandments seem pretty big, you know, like murder, adultery, stealing. And some might consider this to be on a, on a lower level of importance, and it is not. It is absolutely essential and integral to all of these last commandments in particular. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The world doesn't get a handle on this at all. I, I mentioned this before, and, and you've heard it in other situations where so, so many of the colleges or universities have, you know, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free over their archway. But they do not in that university define the truth as Jesus. They define the truth as the latest thing that science has come up with or that which the professors on that campus believe to be true, whether it be evolution or, or communism or whatever it is. You know, that to them is, is truth. The problem is so many of the campuses today, they're teaching that whatever you like is truth, that there is no absolute truth. And yet, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is speaking absolutely exclusively. There is no other way 
as Peter will tell us in Acts, by which a person can attain eternal life. There is no other way. It cannot be by Buddha or by the paths of Hinduism or anything else, even though in our pluralistic America, many would like us to say, well, I mean, it's, it's wrong for you as a, as a, quote, Christian, to try to tell other people that your way is the only right way. Well, it just happens to be what Jesus said, who's the Son of God, the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus is the truth, which means there is an absolute truth. Big old T at the beginning of that word. There is an absolute truth, and he is the life. There is no life in any other name. God is absolute truth, and the devil wants us to believe otherwise. And he's winning in America, it seems, at least with the majority of people. But because God is absolute truth, he is vitally concerned with truth in our lives, with honesty in our lives, and with integrity in our lives. In all our relationships, we're to be people of truth, people of honesty, and people of integrity. In Revelation 21.8, we read these words. Well, I'm not going to read it to you. It just says that liars will have their place in hell. Now, that doesn't mean everybody who's ever told a lie will go to hell because we'd all be there, probably. But it means a person who lives his life by those principles is bound for hell because the truth is not in him or her. Because if we've been filled with the truth, we are convicted if we give a falsehood. And if we can just give falsehoods all the time without any concern, and it doesn't even seem to us to be a falsehood, then I have serious doubt that the truth is in us and ever has been born within us. Scripture tells us that hell was made for the devil and his demons. And in John 8, Jesus said of the devil, there is no truth in him, for he is a liar and the father of lies. God is very serious about this commandment against false witness. The term witness, which in Hebrew is just a little tiny short word, uh, is used many, many, many times in Scripture. Sometimes in ways like, you know, the, the, the pile of stones that they piled up there outside the Jordan River, or in the Jordan River, when they passed over, was a, a witness. But in this particular passage, the word witness is qualified by the word false, which is a legal term as it is used here, relating to testimony given before judges. Now, in a land such as Israel was, where one could be stoned to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses, you want to be sure that those witnesses are telling the truth. The point of this commandment is expanded to us in just a little bit, a couple of chapters over in Exodus 23. Exodus 23, verses 1 and 2 where we read this, You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. We are not to pass along false reports. We are not to become a sewer pipe of unsubstantiated claims. You know, gossip falls into this category to some degree because a great deal of gossip is false. 
Scripture, of course, makes it clear that gossip is wrong, true, or false. Particularly, of course, are we not to give perverted witness for the purpose of destroying someone else. The God's people are to seek justice. They are not to thwart it in any way. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, who will be in office in those days. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him, just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge evil from among you. What would that do to our justice system? Anybody discovered in the process of giving false testimony for the purpose of harming another will have it done to him. In other words, you lie for the sake of getting this guy thrown into prison and they discover you've, you've told a lie, then you go to prison for the number of years that you hoped he would go for. Whoa. Suddenly perjury would uh, be a, you know, a, a much rarer phenomenon, I think, if that were to be true. This passage, I think, makes it clear that if someone's testimony is disputed, the judges were to investigate and discover the truth. Now, this is very important because the Scripture tells us that uh, a matter is, is, is made true if there are at least two or three witnesses. Now, all of us would look at that and say, that sounds good, but there is always a chance that you have false witnesses as we're brought against Jesus. And so God here made it clear that if the person accused disputes the claim of the witnesses, then the judges must investigate the matter to discover whether the witnesses are true or not. And I think the ultimate result is that if they come up with either proof that they are false witnesses or not enough proof to, to validate their witness, then, you know, the person is not going to be convicted in either instance here. So God is always concerned with justice, and, and God has made it clear that justice shall prevail in the land whose Lord is God. Now, on the other hand, if someone has knowledge of a crime but remains silent, that is also false witness. Levit Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Now if a person sins, after he hears a public adjuration to testify, when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, he will bear his guilt. In other words, someone has knowledge of what is being dealt with here and refuses to speak, he is guilty before God for being a false witness. I'll just uh, read the verse to you from Proverbs 29, verse 24. He who is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He hears the oath, but tells nothing. In other words, the thief says, no, I didn't do that, but you know otherwise, and you say nothing, you've become a partner with the thief. God condemns false testimony, and he condemns silence when that person who is silent has the truth and refuses to give it, because that also becomes false witness. All of this boils down to the big I word, integrity. 
integrity of character. If one is a child of God, against whom are we measured? Against Christ. <laughs> we are to be Christ-like. Can you imagine Christ telling a lie? Can you imagine Christ stealing? Can you imagine Christ doing any of these things? Well, then we have no excuse as believers because He is our measure. And we can't go say, well, you know, I interpret this as something else. Bull. This is Christ, and this is against the one we are measured, and we have no other option. We can't say, well, but in this world, in the United States in the 20th century, there is such a thing as a white lie. Well, if the Bible doesn't provide such a thing as a white lie, then there is no such thing, regardless of what our culture says there is. And there are many Christians, this is kind of, <clears throat> well, it, it's part of this actually, secretaries who are believers have a real hard time. And sometimes they're forced to quit when a boss keeps saying, well, tell him I'm not here, when he's sitting right there. They, well, it's just a white lie. Well, it's not. It's a fat, flat-out lie. Tell him yourself. <laughs> that might get you fired. But, hey, we, we have a, a friend of ours in the Bay Area who just went out, went to the boss flat out and said, look, you don't want me to lie to you. Don't expect me to lie for you. And, and the guy respected her integrity, and he doesn't ever ask her to tell a lie. And I think that's the right approach, really, uh, to deal with an issue like that. Because what boss wants to have a person that lies to him? Well, what do you expect? You're asking me to lie to everybody else. It's kind of a character I am and the kind of character you are. Well, let me just, uh, I'll just read these verses quickly to you from Proverbs uh, chapter 5. It says, a false witness, a faithful witness, will not lie. But a false witness, what else can he do? Verse 25 of Proverbs 14, a truthful witness saves lives, but he who speaks lies is treacherous. Then in 21, 28, we read this, a false witness will perish, but the man who listens to the truth and implying speaks the truth will himself speak forever, live forever, in other words. The New Testament speaks very powerfully concerning the matter of truth. To suppress the truth is a form of false witness, and it earns the wrath of God because God tells us this in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Can you imagine what that's going to mean to leaders of government who are constantly suppressing the truth? Not just our government, but governments around the world. I mean, being a politician in America today or in many countries in the, uh, in the world today is a real tough thing for a believer because a believer cannot suppress the truth. No matter whom it protects, you cannot suppress the truth because God opposes that vehemently. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that we are to lay aside falsehood and speak the truth in love. And that in love qualifies the truth. And that eliminates gossip. Because we can say, well, the truth is, I know that my neighbor sleeps with his neighbor. But that doesn't mean we should go around blabbing it. We need to pray for such people, obviously, especially if they claim to be believers. But speaking the truth in love means that sometimes we have to tell someone, you know, this is a real problem in your life. 
and I'd like to help you pray. I mean, I'd like to pray for you to help this problem be resolved. It's a private matter between you and that person, maybe. Not something that becomes a part of gossip. To do anything else than to speak the truth in love is to deny Christ. And as the scripture says, give place to the devil. Next week, we're going to look. Isn't it amazing how these commandments apply to the 20th century? It's almost as if God knew that we will need them in the 20th century, you know? Thou shalt not covet. This is really difficult in our society because our society, the economic base of our society, is to make people covet. You turn on the TV and your car's not good enough, you got to have this one. Now, to want to have that car is not necessarily covetousness, but it is if it eats you alive and you can't afford it. <laughs> or if it's your neighbor's and you want his car. It's like going to this cool Friday nights or whatever it is, the, this thing where it had all the fancy cars in town. <clears throat> Some people go around and they just drool over these, these vehicles and, and they'd like to have that one, you know. Well, that becomes covetousness when it's in that. Uh, I mean, you may like to have a nice car and you might save for a nice car, but if you want somebody else's nice car and you might even figure out how to get it, that becomes <laughs> covetousness. But we'll look at that uh, next week.